Welcome to the Strive for More podcast. My name is Jared Hendry and I'm the founder of Strive. We're a group of young entrepreneurs that you've probably never heard of. In our weekly meetings, we share keystone habits that can change the lives of the other entrepreneurs in the group. And now I want to share those habits with you. Each week, you'll get access to what we call the teachable moment. And that focuses on improving the quality of our health, wealth, and relationships. I have the absolute pleasure of introducing David Kim. He is a resident physician at Vancouver General Hospital, and he's currently undergoing a specialization training in emergency medicine. He's got a subspecialty in aerospace medicine and holds a master's in science in aerospace medicine from King's College, London. He received his MD from the University of British Columbia and his diploma in aviation medicine from the UK Faculty of Occupational Medicine. David is interested in the application of medicine to deep space flight and currently does research for the European Space Agency, where he looks at innovative countermeasures to long duration human space flight. He's also invented and patented multiple medical devices and is currently a part of a biomedical startup company. David is always looking for innovative solutions to today's problems. David, thank you so much for joining me and let's jump right into this thing. Jared, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being here, David. So let's start off by maybe you just sharing, how do we know each other? Yeah, I guess we met uh, towards the end of high school, actually. And um, I was introduced to you by a mutual friend of ours. And uh, I remember meeting you, Jared, uh, because uh, I was over at my friend's house. And he said, I want you to meet my friend, uh, Jared. And I remember... Uh, having a really good impression about you and you know those people that you meet you have a good uh, impression and feeling about that person and I knew knew you were full of energy and you had just such a (laughs) awesome bright smile towards you and I that's the first thing I remember about you and uh, ever since then we've sort of kept in touch worked on a couple projects together and here we are. Here we are. And uh, I think I can say the exact same thing about you, David, is that I knew from the moment that I met you that you were a special person. I also knew that you were going to go on to do really big things in this world. I also remember remember sitting there thinking, one day I'm going to tell my grandkids that I knew David Kim, whether he's a prime minister or an astronaut or something, this guy's going on to do big things. And so it's just uh, a real pleasure to have you on here today. That's very kind. Thanks, Jared. Yeah. So you founded a national charity. I'm just hoping that you can maybe tell us about the mission and what you maybe achieved with that charity. Yeah. So the charity was called Give Grow. And uh, the reason I started it uh, towards the end of medical school was because uh, through working with a bunch of other charities and nonprofit organizations across Canada, uh, both small and large, uh, I noticed a lot of inefficiencies in how the charitable system and nonprofit sector works, mainly that a lot of resources a lot of time and human resources goes into raising money for good causes. And at the same time, uh, all that resource uh, provides a lot of inefficiency in terms of the actual money going back into the actual causes. So whether it be uh, local homelessness uh, alleviation or international uh, poverty alleviation, uh, charities on average spend about 50 to 60% of the yearly revenues into fundraising to make more money uh, for the fundraising efforts. And that uh, seemed inefficient uh, to me. So I wanted to change how that system worked. So GiveGrow was basically a way 
to help charities and also bring charities and donors uh, together in a more streamlined fashion. Uh, so basically what we made was a platform, uh, mobile and web-based that, that donors could uh, provide a one-time lump sum donation to the organization called GiveGrow. And we would pool all the donations together and through the power of collective uh, investments and collective giving, we would be able to uh, retur uh, return the annual dividends and returns from that investments back to the donors. And the donors could, uh, again, donate that return back into the charities of their choosing. So that principle stays within GiveGrow for the lifetime of uh, their participation with our organization. And all the annual returns and the dividends that would come back from that investment would go back to the donors, uh, which prov would provide uh, theoretically an unlimited stream of annual returns that would stay in the charitable sector. So the main goal was to alleviate the inefficiencies and also bring charities and donors together to make the overall reach of what charities and donors do to a higher level. What kind of lessons did you experience through that process, David? That's a good question. I think whether it be a business, charity, uh, project, or whatever you're working on, um, you want to make sure that you put yourself and your team in the best position possible to succeed. So I learned a couple of good lessons because there's some things that went wrong, some things went well, went well. And uh, I would say, you know, two of the main lessons I learned is the importance of having a good team and a good support network. I think um, uh, creating a, a team that supports you, but supports each other, but is also a safe environment for everyone to grow uh, and safe environment for everyone to push each other, I think is one of the most important things uh, for success in terms of ingredients. The other thing I learned was the importance of also timing um, because uh, I think one of the big uh, things I learned in terms of a, a thing that didn't go well was the difficulty uh, of uh, making time enough time to be able to dedicate to a project like this because this was a big undertaking and doing it during medical school, also <laughs> doing it with you know, other colleagues and friends of mine that had full-time jobs and other projects on the go was difficult. And uh, I think the ability to scale also was, we found very difficult because uh, timing was a huge factor. Timing in terms of where we were at in our lives and also the time we're able to give to give grow, I think was one of the biggest detriments at the time. So that was a good learning experience. <laughs> I think it was incredible that you set out with this goal to totally change how people gave to charities. And I think at one point we were actually up to 20 of us, maybe, maybe even more, maybe 25 people that were working on Give, Grow in some capacity. And what I really admired about you, David, through that process is that you were so fair. You really are an exceptional leader. And um, I have, a, have an incredible amount of admiration for the leadership that you expressed in that process. I, I, I think that you're really such a high performer and, and you're probably one of the highest performers that I've ever met. You've achieved more in 27 years than most people achieve in a lifetime. I think you got into medical school after two years and, and that's pretty much unheard of. Um, so I kind of want to get a sense of what do you do differently than everybody else out there that allows you to achieve so much? Do you have a secret to getting so much done? 
Well, thanks. Thanks, Serge. That's really kind of you. I think I, I wouldn't say there's a secret, but what I would say that has worked for me was keeping myself grounded. I think in everything I did, I wanted to uh, make a difference and provide uh, support and initiative into things that I'm really passionate about. So I remember even before going to medical school or starting Give Grow or starting on, on any of my ventures, I had to really find what I was passionate about and what grounded me. And um, since, since I was little, um, and yeah, since I was little, I've always wanted to, you know, change things for the, for the better and also provide my skills where I can add benefit, add value. And that was, that's really something that's really important to me. So whether it be in medicine where I can use my medical expertise to help people or in nonprofit work where I can use uh, my ability to uh, work with others to the benefit of the team, I've always wanted to ground myself and know where my values and passions lie and always remember that I, whatever I do, I want to add value, whether it be a big value or a small value, I just want to add value into what I do. And I think that for me is always something that grounds me and was important to me. And I think that's something that has always kept me going is that my passion and my values are always aligned with what I do. And that always adds fuel to the fire. So I think that's one of my big things that uh, to myself in terms of making sure that doing something that's important to me and doing something that I'm really passionate about. Where do you think that drive comes from? It's a good question. I think, I think a big thing has to do with my upbringing and my parents. I think, uh, so I, I moved to Canada when I was, I think around seven or eight years old and moving to Canada from a different country uh, was a difficult experience, especially at that age uh, when you're really just kind of adjusting yourself and finding your footing into, into the world as a, as a you know, grade two, three-year making friends. And at the time I didn't know a word of English and uh, it was embarrassing not having to be able to communicate uh, with others and not having a sense of value because there was an intersect between Western values and my parents' values, which were of, uh, which are of Korean descent. So there is that intersect, which I've always had a difficulty in identifying and fitting in with growing up. However, that sense of community that, uh, that Canada has provided me and the sense of, uh, you know, of doing something and working hard at something and being rewarded for it, I think is what makes our country and the opportunities that are available to us just so priceless. And I think that that ability and knowing that I was raised in this environment and community and country that is, that is so fostering towards hard workers and people that want to achieve their goals. And we have that opportunity that so much of the other world doesn't is, is enough fuel to the fire for me to provide that drive and also to support others and create initiative initiatives uh and and what and what i do and i think that's a big part of where my drive comes from well kudos to you for taking those opportunities and and working so hard through all of that i want to get a sense of your specific routines do you have any specific routines that you follow that maybe we can copy and implement in our own lives yeah, I think something that I do, people have pointed out that they find a bit weird is my, my uncanny uh, obsession, I guess you could say, with scheduling things. 
So if you look at my calendar, um, it's literally in 15, 30 minute increments. And it's not that I had to stick to my schedule and that I always stick to my schedule, but I like having a plan. So I like having a plan of what my next day, what my next week is going to be, both short-term and also long-term. So I always have a to-do list on my computer and my phone. Um, and I like to cross things off and always add and delete things to it. And it's always a, a continuous process. But at the same time, uh, my calendar gives me you know, a short and long-term overview of what I need to achieve tomorrow, today. And it gives me a, a skeleton framework of uh, my routines and what I need to get done. And I think it, it, may, it may sound a bit intense, um, but like I said, it's not something I always stick to. And if something comes up or something changes, then I'm always amenable to flexibility. But I like to have that skeleton framework of, you know, whether it be even just like reading for 30 minutes or going to the gym for an hour and a half, I need to schedule it in so that I have that skeleton frame built in into my routine of everyday life. Do you mind me asking what platform that is that you use to schedule? Um, well, I have a BlackBerry, which... Oh my gosh, at. everybody should be <laughs> laughing right now. That's true. And it's, it's BlackBerry tasks and notes that I use. Okay. And it, and it syncs with my calendar. How long would you be scheduling those out for? Like, do you schedule two days out or do you schedule two months out? Um, I usually schedule like the 15, 30 minute increments up to a week out. And then I set chunks of blocks uh, up to a month out. So if I know I have a deadline, uh, let's say two weeks from now, I'll schedule like four hour increments chunks that I know. So if, if, for example, this deadline and I know it'll take 12 hours of work, I'll schedule the 12, 12 hours of work somewhere in the next two weeks into my calendar. And it changes every day where that might move around to another day or another time. Uh, but yeah, usually uh, the next week is fairly uh, more specific, but I can schedule things up to a month in advance usually. Wow, that's excellent. What gets scheduled gets done? Um, good question. I would say most gets done. So like, for example, I'm looking at tomorrow's schedule of events. I have like a run that I scheduled in from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. I have a chat with a friend from 10 to 11 and then I have lunch from 12 to 1. I have a 15-minute uh, meditation break. I have a 45-minute uh, reading session that I need to do. And then I work after that at 2 o'clock. And then I ha even have my sleep scheduled. Again, it's a rough schedule. I even have my sleep scheduled. And um, it's kind of little, little things that help me keep stay on track. And also, it's also built into my to-do list. So whenever I have things that I've accomplished in my calendar, I can tick that off on my to-do list and it syncs automatically, which I find super helpful. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that information. That's uh, admirable. And I think that I've been trying to go more in that direction, David, and I think you're just at a different level, but I, I really have noticed in my own life that what gets scheduled gets done. And so I've been trying to totally. schedule those things that matter in my life. Mm -hmm. Transition a bit here. So you have a couple of awesome routines. Do you have any sense of what holds people back from achieving their goals? Um, well, you know, I think a big thing is fear. And I wouldn't necessarily say fear is a bad thing or a good thing, but I think people are sometimes scared uh, to fail uh, because, you know, starting a startup, starting your own company uh, in the business world, there's a lot of risks that you have to take. 
And it's scary when you're quitting a job to start a new job or quitting your job, day job to start a startup. I think that is, is, is really scary because there's a potential to fail. Fail from a financial sense, fail from a, a goal sense, an objective sense. And that's, that is scary. But you know, I wouldn't look at that as also as a, as a negative thing because that fear is, is good. You shouldn't do something silly where it's, it's, you know, you're set up to fail, but you should set yourself up and use that fear in a positive way so that if you are to fail, you fail positively in a, in a good way. And what I mean by that is putting your, your goals and what you want to do in terms of uh, your, your next big project, for example, um, ensuring that you have a pathway to get there. And even if you don't achieve that goal, at least you stayed on that path, or even if the pathway has changed, you have some sort of timeline or skeleton framework to get to that goal so that you can learn from those specific pathways that you've had to alter or uh, cross off. And I think that's really uh, what would be helpful in learning how to fail properly. And I think that fear in terms of taking that initial jump is what holds people back. But I would say use that in a positive, creative way and embrace the fear and know that the fear is normal, but also know that there's ways to minimize the fear by planning things out and by making sure that you uh, and you have, again, that's the secret ingredients in terms of setting yourself into a good team and having a good support network, all those things. So that when you do fail, it's not a bad failure. You've failed in a good way where you can learn from all those steps and processes. I see you as somebody that, has never really, from an outsider's perspective at least, felt that fear, that fear of starting something new. You know, you start a national charity all by yourself. You are part of a biomedical startup that you're starting. You've made all these awesome investments in the financial world. Any tips from your own experience, how you've overcome that, that maybe we can learn from you? Well, I think everyone that you know, seems successful or has succeeded, uh, they come with a lot of failures. And I probably have more, have more failures under my belt than I have successes. And I think um, I, I relish in that discomfort, the discomfort of failure or discomfort of everyday life things that scare you. And I, and I think people shy away from that discomfort. But what I say is, is embrace the discomfort. If you're afraid or scared of something, ask yourself, why are you scared? Is it logical? Is there a reason to be scared? Um, and are there ways to overcome that discomfort? And just kind of really just bask in the discomfort because discomfort is what makes us human, it's normal. And we experience discomfort in every part of our lives. For example, you know, I, I hated water when I was a kid and I hated swimming and I was such a bad swimmer. And that was a big fear of mine uh, up until just a few years ago when I thought, you know, like this, this is ridiculous. Why am I scared of water? Everyone can swim. Uh, dogs can swim. Anyone, anyone can learn to swim. And things uh, like that, whether it be a goal or specific fear that you have, you have to ask yourself why you're afraid and also ask yourself, is this a logical fear? And ask yourself how you can get over that discomfort and then tell yourself, really tell yourself that that discomfort is normal and good. It's good and awesome to feel uncomfortable sometimes because it puts you in a position to overcome that fear. So because of that, 
you know, now I'm, I'm a fairly okay swimmer. I've gone scuba diving and I got my scuba diving license and I enjoy uh, swimming now. So I think those little things where you have discomfort or you're uncomfortable with a specific goal or plan, just embrace it. Tell yourself that it's normal and just go off the deep end and, and tell yourself that you can do it and just enjoy that discomfort because that discomfort sometimes is kind of fun to be a bit uncomfortable. Yeah, that's how I live my life is just a constant state of discomfort. <laughs> I've heard that from a couple of people recently is that inability to swim and overcoming that is a really hard thing to do. And it's a really common thing, the fear of swimming. So it's interesting to also hear you express that. Uh, I just want to reflect on where we've come. So you founded this charity, you finished medical school. And then you went off to Europe and you completed a master's degree in aerospace emergency medicine. I just want to transition onto that experience. I'm just hoping that maybe you can tell us a little bit about that program for those of us that aren't in the medical community and have no idea what an aerospace emergency medicine master's is. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. So aerospace medicine is a field in medicine that deals with anything aviation and aeronautics or space related. So it ranges from the discipline of military aviation medicine, where there's physicians working in the military to help train our fast jet pilots and also take care of their health. And it ranges to also commercial flight programs where physicians do pilot health medicals and set policies and looking at how pilots are selected and trained and also screened out for medical problems um, and also commercial crew health and commercial passenger health. So companies like Air Canada or WestJet that, that we're all familiar with have physicians that work for them to come up with medical policies and determining which crew uh, are safe and fit to fly, fly from a medical perspective, but also passengers. Should there be an in-flight medical emergency, how to deal with that situation from a medical and a logistical perspective. And then there's also space medicine which deals with astronaut selection, astronaut health, and also planning for uh, missions in space as we gear up to go to deep space missions back to the moon and to planets we've never been to before, like Mars. So it's a field of medicine where we deal with the physiological changes that happen in the flight environment, whether that be in uh, higher atmospheric uh, environments on Earth or outside of Earth. Wow. So you're an astronaut doctor. We're just going to clarify that. Um, <laughs> at one point, you mentioned innovative countermeasures for long duration human spaceflight. Can you just tell us what the heck is this? Yeah, it's, it's also a good question. So during my master's program, I had the opportunity to work at the European Astronaut Center, which is a, an office in a department through the European Space Agency in Cologne, which is in Germany. And one of the projects that they're working on as we gear up to deep space flight uh, to the moon and to Mars is looking at how our body changes in microgravity. So here on earth, we have gravity and we've evolved as a species, as humans to survive in gravity with air and with pressurization. And as we leave earth and go, to, go back to the moon and go to uh, Mars, we enter a state of microgravity where there is no gravity and also changes to oxygen composition as well as uh, pressurization schedule changes. 
which means that our bodies undergo an incredible, incredible amount of change. So for example, when astronauts go to the International Space Station, uh, they, all their fluids now, instead of being in their legs or other parts of the body, now pull up into their head and their torso. So there's a lot of fluid shifts. How we pee changes, how our circulation works changes, how we see changes. All parts of our body undergo dynamic changes because of the loss of gravity. So we as physicians in space medicine have to come up with countermeasures to make sure that our bodies adapt well to the space environment. So astronauts actually exercise uh, uh, 19 minutes every single day on a space station to make sure that our bones stay healthy and that our muscles don't lose mass and that our circulation system is still uh, fit so that when we come back to Earth or when we uh, land on other planets, that we're healthy enough once we're re-exposed to gravity uh, to, to do sp space exploration. Because if we didn't do these exercises, astronauts, when they come back from the space station, they wouldn't be able to walk. They wouldn't be able to stand just because their, their bodies have changed so much from the loss of gravity. So countermeasures basically talks about how we can make sure that our bodies adapt properly to the space environment and how we can make sure that we don't undergo changes that's detrimental to our health during long duration space flight as we explore uh, the outer breaths of our solar system and universe. So if you're exploring what we can do as humans to protect our bodies during long duration space flight, which I'm assuming is longer than the moon, what I'm, to other planets, I'm sure, where are we going with space exploration? And what did you learn through that program that can uh, maybe shed some light on the future for us? Yeah, so since we've been to the moon 50 years ago, we haven't been back. And uh, one of the big plans that NASA, the European Space Agency, and the Canadian Space Agency, Space Agency and other agencies have decided is that we're gonna go back to the moon in 2024. And once we go back to the moon, we're gonna figure out how we can uh, survive on the moon and, and create a habitat there so that when we go to other planets like Mars down the road, we have mastered how to survive in an extreme environment uh, like the moon where there isn't oxygen, where there isn't as much gravity and when there is, isn't as pressure uh, that we have in the atmosphere that the earth has given us. So in terms of the future of space exploration, I think there's a lot to be excited about going back to the moon to, to actually set up a habitat is really exciting. And also going back, going to the moon is also, sorry, going to Mars is also really, really exciting. I think we as humans, we've, it's also in our DNA to explore and ask what's out there and continually explore the unknown. And I think to push the boundaries of, of human discomfort in this kind of way is really amazing. And I think uh, space medicine helps the health of the astronauts so we can uh, adequately do this in a healthy way as well. You spoke earlier about how you always embrace discomfort. And now you're mentioning that in order to, uh, that we have to embrace discomfort if we want to push the boundaries. So my question to you is, are you going to Mars? <laughs> you know, one day, maybe that will be pretty amazing. Uh, but being an astronaut is difficult and there's a lot of things you have to give up to be an astronaut too. And uh, I, if, if, if someone were to t 
give me the opportunity to go to Mars right now, I probably would say yes, actually. Wow. Uh, because I think it would be a pretty amazing experience. But we'll see. When the next astronaut selection call-out comes out, maybe I'll put my name in the hat. Well, David, I can't imagine anybody better that would need to repopulate our species than you. So if it's a voting process, you would have my vote. <laughs> I can't imagine it's a voting process, though. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit here. And in the news recently, there's been lots of talk about extraterrestrial life. Like Joe Rogan, for example, he's got the podcast and he's had two smart, respectable guys that have been involved with aliens and the government. So a couple of the names that pop into my mind are Bob Lazar is one. And I think the other guy was Commander David Fravor. Can you talk about it? You're, so you're in the, you're in the space world. Talk to me about aliens. Are they really out there? <laughs> you know, this is something I always think about and have great conversations uh, with people about. I think, you know, statistically speaking, I do feel like there is a life form out there. What that looks like, you know, it may be like a bacterium or a microorganism. It may not be a high order complex species like us, or maybe a very, very complex species. But if you just think about the vastness of our universe and what's out there, statistically speaking, I would wager that there has to be some sort of life form. Now, you know, it's, it's, it's mind boggling when you think about how big the universe is, right? We're just a tiny speck in a universe. And, you know, someone told me, if you, if you think about all the sand on our planet, all the little grains of sand and all the beaches and oceans in the world, and each grain of sand represents a star, and with that star, there's planets orbiting that star. Now think about the universe, right? It's, it's kind of that magnitude. If you think of all the stars and the planets out there to that magnitude of scale, as there are grains of sand in our Earth, there's got to be something out there, right? I'm not smart enough to make a decision on that, but I'm going to believe whatever you believe. <laughs> the jury Yeah. One day, I'm sure... We'll find out. Yes, totally. Maybe you'll find out when you're on Mars. <laughs> totally switching gears here. And I want to talk briefly about the investment world because as I've known you over the last 10 years or so, I've known that you have always had really insightful perspectives into investing, the stock market, and, um, and just generally the world economy. So I want to get a sense of what are you focused on right now? Well, I like to look at the long-term perspectives of how the economy works. And I think there's a lot of short-term fluctuations that happen due to political situations, even natural disasters and things that happen around the world. And those fluctuations, little blips in the, in the big scale of things can be scary when uh, you're into the investment uh, sector. But I like to hold a long-term position. And I'm always positive and have an optimistic view of, of the market and, and the global economy in terms of how we operate and how we're uh, growing as a, as a global economy. And I'm hopeful that it can also be done in a sustainable manner. And I think there needs to be some shifts that happen, maybe some growing pains as we tackle some of the issues to do with climate change and, and global warming with respect to what's happening, because there's a lot of tension between 
uh, economy, eco economical growth and um, the state of our planet and its health. And um, I think that can also be done in a positive way. So I hold an optimistic, positive view where I think we can really reinvest and invest into green energy and the green sector that contributes to uh, global economical growth. So I hold a positive uh, and optimistic view long-term wise in terms of how the investing world looks like. Any great investment opportunities for us out there right now? <laughs> well, I think the emerging economies, uh, especially in Asia and parts of Africa, uh, there's a lot of uh, companies and up-and-coming sectors, uh, especially in technology and, and green energy, that's really exciting that I have my eyes on. And uh, it's exciting both from a growth perspective, but also from a sustainable perspective. So I encourage uh, you or whoever's listening to check out you know, the emerging economies in terms of the companies that are working uh, to bring green energy and green power into the investing world. That's a great insight. Thanks, David. So you're working currently on a company called Definity Solutions, and, and it's a medical device company. You, we spoke about it in your bio, uh, where you've got actually, I think, three patents now. Can you tell us where you're at with the business? Yeah, so business started a couple years ago uh, between me and a co-worker. And, um, you know, again, because I'm so passionate about looking at improvements and how we can make changes for improving whatever I'm working on. So this, the couple of inventions that I made uh, are medical devices specifically do with injectable medications. And uh, we have uh, raised a little bit of money from friends and family and angel investors to create a few provisional patents, a solid business plan. We have gotten a couple of grants from the government to, um, to grow and, and produce some prototypes into the devices that we're making. And uh, we're also just about to start a larger round of fundraising uh, for the first round of fundraising, as well as looking at the regulatory side of medical device manufacturing, processing, and uh, sales and marketing in Canada. So uh, it's, it's still a fairly small project that I've tried to bootstrap as much as I can. Uh, with the people that uh, are working on the project in terms of all the engineering, uh, legal, financial things that's gone into it uh, because I've wanted to make sure that it's taken as far as I can take it. And now we're at the point where, okay, we need a bit more revenue. We need a bit more expertise in terms of how we can bring this from a concept into a product in front of my hands is is where we're at right now. So we're at the process of raising uh, some money and talking to investors to get to that next next stage. What's the vision? Well, I really wanna change how we give medications because right now uh, how we do it is too slow, it's inefficient and it's error prone. And um, I the, the products that we've created solves all of those problems. And on top of that, it's a really, really safe product. So it prevents needle stick injuries. It uh, gives, uh, it makes medication delivery much quicker and much, much safer and reduces medical errors. So my, my overall vision is that whenever medications are given, 
that people think of our product as a new go-to product to make medication delivery more efficient, more safe, and uh, much more quicker so that overall it improves patient outcomes down the road. So that would be things like insulin or heparin. Is that kind of what you're thinking of? Yeah. So some of the big things that we're looking at is epinephrine, right. uh, which you, I'm sure have heard about, which can be given as an EpiPen outside of the hospital for patients to use, but also in a hospital in a cardiac arrest situation, but also other multitudes of, of drugs, uh, such as ketamine, naloxone for the opioid crisis, atropine for cardiac arrest situations, really for any medication that can be given intravenously or intramuscularly, muscularly, uh, we can use our product uh, to give drugs. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I want to transition a bit here to, to the people listening. And so, David, you've got so much experience in the charitable sector and now in, in the business sector as well. I just want to get a sense of for those young entrepreneurs out there, you know, those that may have small businesses, solopreneurs, or maybe just folks that have a day job and they want to eventually leave that. Do you have any advice for those folks? Yeah, I think it goes back to what I was talking about earlier about uh, discomfort and embracing discomfort. I think um, you have to weigh the risks and the benefits of starting a business and taking it to a position where you're comfortable and happy with and also want to grow it to a level that, uh, that you want it to grow to. And I think people um, in the very early stages struggle with taking that initial leap or um, investing their time and energy and money into a project. What I would say is, you know, weigh what you're passionate about and think about if this is something that you can imagine yourself doing down the road and make sure that it aligns with your goals and your passions. And if it does, don't be afraid. I mean, obviously set a plan and weigh everything that you can in terms of taking those risks and taking that leap. But that discomfort and that, that feeling of fear is never going to go away, no matter how much you've thought about it or how much you've planned for. So be okay with that. And if you think that this passion or idea is, is something that really sticks to you and speaks to you, then I would say go for it. Don't be afraid. And it may mean taking some risks, but life is short and life is not fun if you don't take some risks. Yeah, that's really resonates with me as well. And I think that it's so important for folks to narrow down their goals. We all have so many things that we're trying to achieve, but I think that if people look at their goals and they really narrow their focus, let's say, you know, a reasonable person may have 15 goals, but over time, if you're, you're able to narrow those down by really reflecting on what matters here, what is the number one most important thing that I need to accomplish that maybe that makes every other goal totally not important? What is that number one most important thing? Um, and then really working every single day toward that. And the beauty thing about it is that if you have one thing, it makes your decision-making process so much easier. You're not like, well, do I work on getting more sales today or do I build a new product? It's, if your goal is bringing in more sales, it's really simple. Get more sales. 
Mm. It's very true. David, what's the best book that you've read recently on entrepreneurship and why? Mm, good question. Um, so I read a book recently called Where Are the Customers Yachts? I don't know if you've heard of it, Jared. Where are the uh, customer? Where are the customers yachts? Ah, thank you. Yeah. And um, it's, I won't spoil it, uh, but basically it is a very interesting long-term historical perspective of the financial industry and sort of where we're going and some of the main philosophies and values that, that really, really resonated with me. And um, it also even talked about that discomfort and fear as well as you know, embracing some of that fear. And it really resonated with me. And I re- it was also very enjoyable and also funny at times. Uh, it was a really good read. So I'd recommend that actually to anyone interested in business or finance or entrepreneurship. Anything that particularly stood out to you from that book? Um, I think the concept of, of, of a long goal. Um, and it talks about uh, the market winners uh, are never the short-term players. It's always a long-term players. If you look at the really, really successful people in the world, Steve Jobs, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, they've always held a long-term perspective in all of their goals. And they're all big picture thinkers. And I think that long-term vision is so important to have that needs to be grounded within the philosophy of any business that you start or any uh, project that you take on. And that, I think, is a key message from also the financial industry from a historical perspective is because it's the long thinkers uh, in a systematic sense as well that always win out on the market. It takes out some of the risk if you're able to think long-term. You don't necessarily have to count on the short-term movements and enthusiasms or in the markets. Yeah, exactly. What's the most important thing that you've learned in the last year? Uh, Something that can hopefully massively impact our listeners. Yeah, so I think one big thing this year, uh, because I've been able to travel and work in different countries. So I lived in the UK doing some work for the Royal Air Force as part of my master's program, and also in Germany working for the European Space Agency. Uh, One of the things that really opened my eyes is the importance of having perspective. And I think sometimes we get stuck in our silos, especially for me, uh, because I've been in residency now for four years. It's a five-year residency program. You kind of get stuck in your own silos, especially I think in healthcare. Maybe you can resonate uh, with this a bit, Jared because you're also in healthcare. And I find that, you know, when you're working in your own silo, whether it be in the hospital or in your day job, you get really stuck in a specific mindset and you forget to challenge some of the ideas of why things are done a certain way or why, why things haven't changed. And you become complacent in, in, in your sort of narrow silo. And being able to travel and also work in different countries in the last year really, really opened my eyes and perspectives into other sectors, you know, space medicine, uh, the Air Force, working in those completely different sectors than I was used to really taught me how things work completely different. And some things that may be so important to you are not that important in the big picture scheme of things. So I would say open your perspectives and uh, remember to, to, to 
broaden your horizons and not get stuck in your silo. That's a great insight. And if I can offer a parallel, one thing that we notice in Strive, one of the benefits is that the weekly meetings where we meet from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. with a group of us guys and we talk, set goals and talk about our businesses and express challenges, successes, et cetera, it gets the guys out of working in their business every day and gets them to work on their business. That's not necessarily the primary intention, but just like what you're saying, in kind of a small way, we get that outside perspective once a week at least because it's so hard to both work in your business and on your business. It's very, very true. I want to finish off here with one last question. And I'm going to ask for you to show probably a little bit of vulnerability here. At the end of our meetings of Strive, we always um, ask one guy to reflect on what is holding them back from achieving their goals. And so I want to pose that same question to you. What's holding you back from achieving even higher levels of success right now? Yeah, I think, I think for, for me, it's, it's the daily grind. Sometimes I, I, I'm generally a big picture thinker, but with the daily grind that happens, you know, the little daily routines that, uh, that need to get done. Uh, so for me right now, that is, you know, focusing on finishing residency and finishing strong. Sometimes I lose sight of the big picture, uh, which is, which is not, which is not good. And I want to make sure that I don't lose sight of that. And I think that can happen to anyone. Um, and that's something I've been struggling with recently is that, um, you know, focusing on the daily grind, the little things, uh, I, I can lose sight of, uh, what's happening in the overall scheme of things and what, what, what's, what's ground, what grounds me. And even, even though I talked about it before, the importance of remembering what I'm passionate about and, and knowing what grounds me, sometimes I still lose touch with that. And I really need to uh, be more in tune with uh, my, my thoughts and uh, my inner core values and beliefs. And I think losing touch with that can be dangerous. And, um, and I think I need to focus more on just, um, just thinking or having 50 minutes a day to just uh, being mindful about what grounds me and reminding myself what's what I'm passionate about and what keeps me going and wakes me up every morning and uh, not to lose sight of the big picture. David, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. From the very day that I met you, like I said, I knew you were going on to do big things. You're already achieving really significant things in this world. So I'm grateful you were interested in sitting down. If you want to learn more about David, you can find him on Twitter at underscore David Kim. LinkedIn is David S.H. Kim. And you can find Definity Solutions at Definity, D-I-F-I-N-I-T-Y dot C-A. Thanks, David. Jared, thanks so much for having me. And I can say the same things about you. And I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you about some of the topics we talked about today. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode and hopefully you got some lessons from this that you can apply to your own health, wealth, or relationships. I created this podcast to help myself learn from those that came before me. And now I want to pass these lessons on to you to hopefully help you on your journey. Please know that I've got your back and the world needs you to go out there and create, innovate, and iterate. 
If you like this content, then please subscribe and continue listening for our weekly episodes. 